Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. You know, the easiest or the the most important thing to understand about Joe Biden in Delaware and what it what it means for who he is 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 this concept of the Delaware Way, which is something that Joe has explicitly invoked as a model for Washington. He has said that we need more of the Delaware Way in Washington. Washington is too acrimonious. The Delaware Way is a much cozier way of conducting politics, much less adversarial. But there's also a downside to the Delaware Way. It has its critics who say this is essentially cronyism. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. So tell me about Joe. There's a narrative about Joe Biden that we all know. The scrappy kid from Scranton. Scranton. Who became Delaware's favorite son. Delaware. Folksy. He really does like those aviator glasses. He knows he looks good in them. <laughs> Tragedy. It's through purpose you can find your way through grief. Family man. I don't want anybody in my staff feeling an obligation to do something for me when there's something that matters in their family. And of course, the occasional gaffe. I want to be clear. I'm not going nuts. I'm not sure whether it's a medical school or where the hell I spoke, but it's on a campus. It's a truthful but sympathetic narrative that Biden has told about himself for decades and that a lot of people have embraced. But like a lot of political narratives, it's not the only one. Yeah, that's right. A lot of the impetus for this book was just my own, I don't know, surprise, head scratching. Ben Schreckinger. Uh, Wait, should I call you Ben or Shrek? Mix them up. A little both is great. Is a national political correspondent at Politico who has a new book out. The Bidens. The Bidens. Inside the First Family's 50-year rise to power. What was it about Biden that put so many reporters off the scent of some of these interesting stories about his life and career despite being around for so long. Maybe I shouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth <laughs> for whatever reason. These these stones were left unturned and that has given me a lot to write about. All the stones left unturned is what I found remarkable about Ben's book on the Bidens. Their sprawling family and the years of complicated business dealings. There's been so much written about Joe Biden because he's been in government forever. But that Joe Biden you thought you knew? Actually, there's a lot more to learn. There's an extent to which his familiarity obscured some of the underexplored facets of his life and and his context. And I've been surprised frankly by, you know, how much I've how much I've learned. We were talking about your book recently and inevitably got into the fraught subject of Hunter Biden. And I said to you that I found his memoir really, really interesting. And, and the writing that he did about his drug use and these crazy episodes of being high on crack and driving across the desert and either hallucinating or not, you know, a bird helping him make his way down a highway. It's a very confessional and, you know, someone who's read a lot of the style of Gonzo writing, whether it's like Hunter S. Thompson or someone else. I thought they were really evocative chapters about his descent into drug use and dealing with his addictions. Um, his memoir didn't really break through. It didn't get that much attention. 
but I thought it was fascinating. And you sort of stopped me in that conversation talking about that part of the book. And basically you were like, yeah, you're being a little naive here. Yeah. And I would, I would never call you naive, Ryan, but um, what I've observed is that Joe Biden has a reputation as someone with his foot in his mouth, who can be clumsy when he speaks, who gets himself in trouble. And I think that obscures how good he's been and how good the family has been at telling their story and their preferred version of their story and and projecting an image that emphasizes the tragedies that they've endured, the resilience, the fact that Joe Biden was left for dead, not just politically after 1987, but very nearly died. Jill Biden has written that she came upon a priest after Joe Biden had a near-fatal aneurysm delivering last rites in the hospital bed. Uh, So there is uh, a real, real comeback story and just a very touching story of someone who has endured a couple of of very big tragedies in their life that, that has made Joe Biden, you know, relatable to a lot of people and, and have a very genuine connection with a lot of people. At the same time, that's uh, a story that has been told over and over again in the context of creating a political mythos, trying to win political power by winning votes. And one one moment in which I think you can see this pretty clearly is in... I'm Chris Wallace of Fox News, and I welcome you to the first of the 2020 presidential debates. The presidential debate that follows the publication of these New York Post laptop stories, which have been highly, highly controversial. And Donald Trump uses that as an opportunity to tee off on Hunter Biden. And no wonder your son goes in and he takes out he takes out billions oh. of dollars. Takes Starts out billions of saying to Joe Biden, your son did this, your son did that. The mayor of Moscow's wife gave your son three and a half million dollars. What did he true. do to deserve it? What did he clearly do? is referring to Hunter Biden. And, and Joe Biden brings up Bo. He says, are you talking about my son, Bo? Hunter, are you talking about I'm Hunter? talking about my son, Bo Biden. You're and Donald Trump says, I don't know about Bo. I'm talking about Hunter. No, I don't know Bo. I know Hunter. Yeah, Hunter, you know got thrown, Hunter got thrown out of the military. He was thrown out, dishonorably discharged. That's not true. For it wasn't dishonorably. But clearly in that moment, Bo Biden and, and the fact that Bo was this very admirable character who many people thought could be a president himself one day and then, you know, dies in the prime of his life of, of brain cancer is a very, very sympathetic figure. And that's something that, that Joe Biden was eager to talk about in a presidential debate. The, the Biden story, of course, is a story about Delaware. And you spent a lot of time in Delaware understanding Biden's rise there and the so-called Delaware way. So let's dig into that because that seems really crucial. I do think that the most important thing to understand about Joe Biden in Delaware and what it means for who he is, is, is this concept you talk about of the Delaware way. The Delaware way is a much cozier way of conducting politics, much less adversarial. It's about bringing people together, being bipartisan, reaching a consensus agreement. But there's also a downside to the Delaware way. It has its critics who say this is essentially cronyism. One of the most interesting critiques of the Delaware way that I found comes in a a legal filing filed by the acting U.S. attorney in Delaware a little over a decade ago, where he defines the Delaware way as a a form of soft corruption. Uh, And that was in a case where he was putting away a Biden campaign bundler, a guy named Chris Tagani, who 
committed a few crimes, one of which involved illegal straw man donations to Joe's presidential primary campaign in 2007. In an interesting twist and something that I think people don't really understand, uh, David Weiss is also the U.S. attorney now in Delaware, the person overseeing the Hunter Biden investigation. So he's a critic of the Delaware way. Joe Biden's a defender of the Delaware way. And it's sort of like it's something that's in the eye of the beholder. So let's dive into some of the episodes in the book. There's a lot we could pick out. And I want to get into some of your favorite stories and some of the ones that readers and listeners might not be uh, familiar with. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you need to understand the Delaware way to understand some of the conflicts of interest that you chronicle in the book, that there's a, it's a small place, obviously, famously Delaware is a small place (laughs) where everyone knows each other and the political class has grown up together for generations a lot of back scratching that goes on. And that's, that's sort of at the heart of this book. There's one interesting story about Biden's niece, Missy Owens, and her experience working with Coca-Cola. Tell us that story and just start by setting the scene first. Yeah, this was one of many things that have made it into my reporting that arose from just conversations with regular people out in the world. And in one case, I was having brunch with a friend in New York City and said, yeah, I've been reporting on the the Bidens recently and these business dealings. And, you know, a lot of them seem to to hinge on their connections to Joe. And my friend said, you know, it's funny you should mention that because I sort of know Missy Owens and she's a lobbyist for Coca-Cola. I said, well, what? And so, you know, I started to to look into this. And there is an interesting story that arises, which is Missy is the daughter of Val, Joe's younger sister, famously managed his first Senate campaign and then his following campaigns. And her daughter, Missy, ends up managing Bo Biden's attorney general campaign in 2006 successfully, wins a lot of praise for that. And then in the Obama era, she ends up working at the Department of Energy, the Department of Commerce, but then goes into the private sector and takes a job at Coca-Cola in public relations and diplomatic affairs. And this is at a time where soda companies are maybe in trouble in Washington. That doesn't cause disease. I'd like to teach the world about what sugar does to me. Michelle Obama comes in as first lady and kicks off with a healthy lifestyle initiative. <laughs> Over breakfast isn't just for first ladies. Everyone should have a healthy breakfast. Oh, not me. No, no. I am a very busy monster. Initially is explicitly telling people to drink less soda as part of that. Uh, the truth is we all have a choice about uh, what we drink. And when we choose water, we're choosing to be at our very best. And we don't even need science to tell us that. Mike Bloomberg comes along later and is also taking on soda in New York City. Many New Yorkers don't realize that a 20-ounce soda has the equivalent of 16 packs of sugar. And that's why we are combining our new reform limiting the serving size of sugary drinks with an expanding public education campaign. Mark Bittman, the famous food writer in the New York Times, is asking whether soda is going to be the new big tobacco. And so this is a big issue for the soda industry, and they ramp up their lobbying efforts. Interestingly, conservative media starts attacking Michelle Obama 
over these healthy eating initiatives and, and going after Mike Bloomberg and saying these are assaults on personal liberty. But it's also about freedom. Like, can't I choose what I want to put in my mouth that tastes good? Like, right. I can't have a donut. My and in the middle of this, Missy Owens ends up at Coca-Cola. A few months after that, Joe and Jill Biden go on a trip to Latin America. At one point in Brazil, Jill Biden stops at a program that's being run by Coca-Cola down there to encourage entrepreneurship and ends up writing a, a blog post for Coke that highly praises this company. And I just thought it was interesting. You know, you have the first lady trying to get people to drink less soda and the second lady on the White House blog is praising Coca-Cola. I tried to determine whether Missy had a role in facilitating this or not. Um, I didn't hear back from the first lady's people on this. I didn't hear back from Missy Owens on it. She does appear, Missy Owens is at an event that Joe Biden does down in Foggy Bottom with John Kerry, where they're unveiling the World Cup trophy. It's a tour sponsored by Coca-Cola. There's all this Coke branding, and it's a very feel-good event. I want you to know I intend to go to the games. I'm looking at my niece, Missy Owens, who works for Coca-Cola, to get me a good seat if I go. <laughs> I'm not so sure we can handle it, but Missy, maybe you'll be able to help me out. Uh, she also shows up in a White House delegation to Havana, along with Jill Biden and Ashley Biden, uh, towards the end of the Obama years. Jill Biden, esposa del vicepresidente de Estados Unidos, Joseph Biden, inició su visita oficial de tres días a Cuba, que tiene como fin. This is at a time when Coke is available almost everywhere in the world. They have a footprint almost everywhere in the world, except Cuba and North Korea, and are speaking explicitly about their hopes of getting into the Cuban market. And I don't know, you know, whether Missy's relationship to Coke was a factor at all in her participating in that trip. I didn't get answers about that. But knowing the way that influence works in Washington and knowing that at the White House, at that high of a level, you know, even the appearance of a conflict of interest is something worth drawing attention to. I thought this was a, an interesting little chapter, an interesting glimpse of, of the way that Washington often works. And she ends up registering as a lobbyist. She's not a registered lobbyist while Joe Biden's in office as vice president. She registers as a lobbyist soon after. And according to Koch, she's no longer with the company. She left around the time of, of Joe's election to the presidency in 2020. But yeah, I, you know, it was just one of these episodes from the Obama years that flew under the radar. And I think it's it's sort of subtle. And no one has confirmed to me, yes, you know, these these things happened because of Missy's relationship with Coca-Cola, but I think it's worth drawing attention to them. Why do you think that that story didn't get much attention, you know, as opposed to the Hunter story, which obviously was weaponized against Biden during the 2020 campaign? Well, the Hunter Biden story is so much more sensational. You know, he's under criminal investigation. Obviously, we didn't know that at the outset, but his lifestyle had already been making the news, you know, his, his drug addiction problems, his relationship with Bo's widow, Hallie. His work for Burisma had already made the news during the Obama era in terms of the conflict of interest issues that it raised. So I think it's not surprising that something like that generated much more intense interest. And also because Burisma is a Eastern European energy company that had ties to Ukraine's old regime that was Russia-aligned, that was under suspicion of corruption. So I think that that naturally is going to attract a lot more scrutiny 
than a relationship with Coca-Cola, even though public health advocates in the United States and elsewhere do say that there is a big problem with the amount of sugary soft drinks that that Americans drink that are produced by companies like Coke. One other character that you write about is Jimmy. Jimmy Biden is a very intriguing character and one who is not well known. Obviously, Valerie Biden, very well known. Hunter Biden, especially now, very well known. Uh, Jimmy is one of Joe's two younger brothers. He led fundraising as a 23-year-old for Joe's first Senate campaign and so got maybe the best glimpse into the best experience with the intersection of money and politics of any 23-year-old around in 1972. He'd go up to Washington, try to talk union bosses into giving his brother Joe a look, maybe cutting a check, eventually started to have some success with that. And then uh, sort of launches a career that over the last 50 years has intersected with Joe's political power, his political alliances in countless ways, and, and sometimes has drawn unwelcome scrutiny. And the first episode where this occurs is back in Joe's first term in the Senate. Uh, Jimmy decides to open a nightclub in Delaware and gets some generous bank loans to do that. You know, he doesn't really have any collateral. He certainly doesn't have extensive experience in the nightlife industry, but he gets some big loans from a a politically connected bank in Delaware and another one in Pennsylvania. And this, this business doesn't succeed. It goes belly up. And these banks also have big problems that start to make the papers. One of them is Farmers Bank in Delaware. Part of the problem is that they've been giving loans to politically connected people that are not good loans, that are not getting paid back. This gets serious enough that at one point the state of Delaware's Credit rating is downgraded, and in the midst of this, it emerges that Jimmy Biden got these loans for hundreds of thousands of dollars, which at the time was uh, more money than it sounds like now. And in the case of the the loan from a bank in Pennsylvania, uh, he'd gotten a recommendation for that loan from the governor of Pennsylvania, Milton Schaap, who was a political ally of Joe's. And that sort of sets the stage for a pattern where there are episodes like this throughout Jimmy's career as Joe is rising in prominence in Washington. And it's really Jimmy who tutors Hunter Biden in business, takes him under his wing. They buy a hedge fund firm together. There's a venture that they get involved in together where they're trying to go into business with these Chinese businessmen. This is something that is explored in a report from Senate Republicans and also figures into the the laptop controversy that exploded at the end of the campaign. It seems like the the roots of some of these controversies, and and some of them are more serious than others. That's right. Is that Biden's political career is a family affair, right? Absolutely. Val, his sister, runs the campaigns. She famously said in in 2020, something along the lines of it was the first Biden campaign that she didn't run and control, and she was having a lot of trouble, you know, dealing with that fact. (laughs) And as you point out, Jimmy was a fundraiser for his brother. Bo, before his death, was the sort of heir apparent, right, running in uh, Delaware politics. And there's Hunter's long, complicated history of his private life making headlines for his father. In, In your reporting, did you discover any kind of rules that Joe Biden tried to create to limit the intersection of these two worlds? Well, the first rule that 
comes up in their story is a rule that they call wild card. And this is a result of the fact that after uh, the death of Nelia and, and Joe's infant daughter Amy, he is racked with guilt over deciding to remain in the Senate. You know, he's occupied in Washington. He has these two young sons who are being raised largely by Val and Jimmy. So he he creates a rule where they at any time can say wild card. They don't have to go to school. They don't have to do whatever their other plans were supposed to be. They can go with their father to Washington or wherever he's going. And so the first thing that he does is sort of tear down the walls between his day job and what his family is doing. And you see this play out later where there's questions about Hunter tagging along on trips on Air Force Two around the world and and meeting with business contacts as part of that. And in terms of what firewalls are put up, one thing I'd say is that it's still not entirely clear. We still don't know exactly what goes on between members of the family. Joe Biden has said, he said on the campaign trail in response to a question from our colleague Mark Caputo, that he's never discussed his relatives' business dealings with them or with anybody else ever. I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. And what I will do is the same thing we did in our administration. There will be an absolute wall between personal and private uh, and, and, and the government. So that's what they've said the rule is, and they've given different versions of that line in different contexts in recent years. Uh, the president has made clear that there will be an absolute wall between him and any businesses connected with his family members. But there is an issue with that statement. I'm making the statement to set the record straight about the involvement of the Biden family, Vice President Biden, his brother Jim Biden, and his son Hunter Biden. Tony Bobulinski has come forward and said, well, that's not true. I spoke with Joe Biden about Jimmy and Hunter's plans, attempts to go into business with these Chinese businessmen from CEFC, this energy company, in 2017 in Los Angeles. In dealings with the Chinese, I've heard Joe Biden say that he's never discussed business with Hunter. That is false. He was clearly familiar, at least with the broad outlines of this. I have firsthand knowledge about this because I directly dealt with the Biden family, including Joe Biden. The White House hasn't contested that statement. The Biden campaign didn't contest that statement. They've said that Joe Biden has never considered having a family member hold equity in a venture on his behalf. But they haven't actually said, no, that's false. I never discussed this with Tony Bobulinski. And so at the end of the day, the answer is we we just don't really know. Let's talk about Hunter. I can already hear people like switching off the podcast (laughs) (laughs) because just raising Hunter Biden for reporters and for Biden people, for political operatives, it just his name conjures up all sorts of fraught issues about how we cover Biden. And partly it's because of the way that Trump weaponized a lot of false information about Biden against Joe Biden during the campaign. And there was so much thrown out there in 2020 that it was just a giant mess and very, very difficult to sort of litigate what was true and what wasn't. And one of the things you do in this book is just put all that aside and go and take a fresh look at who Hunter is, what 
is a legitimate source of journalistic inquiry. What was the real story with that laptop and the emails? And without getting into all of the various uh, tangents and his life, what do you think readers of the book should take away about what's important about the the Hunter storyline when it comes to Biden and, and politics? That's a great question. You know, I think that understanding all of this background about the centrality of the family to Joe's political operation and then to Bo's political operation, understanding that this family really is extremely tight-knit. That's not a show for the cameras. That's one of the most universal things I hear from people in reporting is, no, they really are that close. It explains why Donald Trump, who's someone who's pretty good at ferreting out the weaknesses of his political enemies, seized on Hunter, because there is real baggage there, and some of it has to do with a troubled personal life, which is attractive for somebody like Trump to sort of throw that into the mix. But there are enough issues around potential conflicts of interest and the like with Hunter Biden's dealings over the years, enough that we don't know that there is more to learn and that it's not just about Donald Trump picking on someone who has some personal problems. And I think understanding that, understanding the fact that at every point along the way, something with the family, whether it's the way that they're helping him or the way that their activities are threatening to to make it into the papers and, and cause some sort of flap, they're just there every step along the way. And, and that can help us understand why so much of the 2020 campaign and Donald Trump's impeachment have come down to questions about Hunter Biden and and explain why he's still in the news. The White House also facing ethics concerns tonight over an upcoming sale of paintings by President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Hunter's artwork is set to be displayed and sold this fall at private and invite-only showings in Los Angeles and New York City. Why? We were finding out that Hunter Biden is becoming a painter and trying to sell those paintings for half a million dollars. And ethics experts are largely aghast. You know, Walt Schaub, who was Obama's ethics czar, has described the amounts of money involved as absolutely appalling. That's six and a half million dollars going to the president's son for being the president's son, not for being an artist. So this is a story that that continues. There's obviously a, a sort of media criticism angle to some of this coverage. Do you think the press has gotten it largely right with its coverage of Hunter Biden? I think that in the context of the 2020 campaign, with the fact that Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump were seizing on Hunter Biden and seizing on this Burisma work, and that the theory that they were trying to push about the firing of Victor Shokin was highly suspect. There are big, big holes in the case that Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani were trying to make about this firing and it's the connection that they alleged to Burisma created a frame in which a lot of the coverage was about pushing back on what Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani were trying to do. And in that context, I think journalists were less likely to say, okay, this seems not quite right, what 
Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump are saying or or very suspicious or, you know, Rudy Giuliani is is talking to Russian proxies as he's doing this, which were all reasons to be very skeptical of what they were doing. But I think also discouraged people from looking at, well, like, what is the real story underneath? And do we really know everything that happened here? And have we really fully explored the potential issues presented by this because Joe Biden was presenting himself as the face of cracking down on corruption in Ukraine while his son was making tens of thousands of dollars a month from uh, one of the people that our own State Department was singling out as a, a poster child of alleged or suspected corruption. Zlachevsky hasn't been convicted, as far as I know, on any corruption charge. Burisma hasn't. But certainly our own State Department, our own ambassador to Ukraine during that period, was talking about his ill-gained, that's a quote, ill-gained or illicit assets that rightfully belong to the Ukrainian people. And Joe Biden, once again, is now in an even broader way trying to position himself as a global anti-corruption crusader. He's outlined this as a priority of his administration. And so this is something that continues to deserve a lot of scrutiny, as do Jimmy and Hunter's abortive ventures with these Chinese businessmen from CEFC. I think that there could have been more coverage of that during the campaign. Shrek, thank you for coming on the show. I hope people buy the book and read it. It's filled with revelations. And anyone that wants to understand this president needs to read it. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. This was a lot of fun. Oh, before you go, I'm going to give you a chance to use this very podcast to help you with some of these unanswered questions. Good luck, Shrek. Hey, Hunter. It's Ben Shrekinger with Politico. I'm wondering, have you ever facilitated any contacts between your father and anyone affiliated with Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company? Uh, and I'm also wondering, who's your favorite painter and why? You can email me at bshreckinger at politico.com. Looking forward to it. Thanks. And that's our show. Our producers are Adrian Hurst and Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. And before you go, I want to tell you about a new podcast Politico just launched called Global Insider, where each episode brings you intimate conversations with the leaders tackling the biggest challenges facing our world. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Ryan Lizza. See you next week, and we'll take you behind the scenes of Capitol Hill on another Playbook Deep Dive. Thanks for listening.